that we have been studying diligently in these last couple of months on Galatians that we, we earn no favor with God by our works. I mean, if it were by legalism and by works, you folks would have some extra stars in your crown tonight just from being here. But we know that you don't because it's not by legalism, it's not by works, it's by grace. I thought about it driving in. I said, you know, I, I'm in a no-win situation tonight. If I preach a short sermon, I'll be accused of compromising. If I, if I preach a long sermon, everybody be mad at me. So I'm just, I have a no-win situation, all right? So I'm just stuck here. I just got to live with it. I'll accept that. Oh, uh, I do want us to look at Galatians chapter 5. Only three verses tonight. And that's a short passage with a lot of stuff in it. Uh, and it wasn't chosen as a short passage tonight because these are last week's bulletins. I was going to preach this last Sunday night. And tonight was actually going to be a very lengthy passage. That will be next week. So in God's providence and God's uh, sense of humor, we have three verses tonight. You don't have any questions on it, we'll go. Oh, no, oh, I'm sorry, that will come later. Uh, <clears throat> chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. If you recall, we have been talking about, and Paul has been reiterating over and over and over, almost, some might say, to overkill, that we are not saved by our works. We are not justified before God by our works. We don't carry out legalistic obligations in order for God to like us more or give us greater blessings that, that we're not trying to earn something from God. We have been given salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the basis of our justification. That's the basis of our salvation. And Paul makes that very clear in writing to the Galatian Christians. Now, it might be that some would misunderstand that. It might be that some would say, well, Paul, what you're saying is then that we're not, we don't have any favor with God by doing good, so we might as well do bad. As a matter of fact, to the Roman, Roman Christians, he anticipated that question, you know, that, well, if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then why don't we just sin a whole lot more so there'll be a whole lot more grace? And that was the anticipated question in that letter, but he had probably actually heard that, or at least heard rumblings of it, that that was going on. Well, Paul is preaching this gospel that where there's great sin, there's great grace, and so let's just all sin big so grace will be big. And Paul says, may it never be. Heavens, no. God forbid. That's not what I'm saying. And it might be that in the Galatian church, where they've been struggling with going back to the law, going back to legalism, going back to trying to earn their salvation, there would be some who would have said the same thing. Now, he doesn't give it quite the clarity that he, uh, that he did to the Roman Christians, but I think these three verses tonight gives us some understanding that they were misunderstanding the whole concept of grace. That they were misunderstanding the whole concept of being justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. That it's on the basis of that that everything is made right with God. And what happens out of that, the works that flow out of that prove that you are in a gracious state, but they do not affect that gracious state. And some may have been understanding that because he, he, misunderstanding that because he starts in verse 13 by saying what he has said in verse 1 of this chapter and other places, for you were called to freedom, brethren. 
in verse 1 of this chapter we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I mean, Paul hits this hard. Paul talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. That we are set free from the shackles of legalism. We are set free from the shackles of religion. We have been set free that we might live in freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And you were called to freedom, brethren. But then he changes direction just a bit. Listen to how he states the rest of these three verses. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. The word consumed there means literally destroyed by one another. Now, in this passage, in these three verses, there is a great pivot in Paul's teaching at Galatia and to the Galatians. He has been concerned that they not go running back to the law. He's been concerned that they not be caught up in legalism and thus bound under this yoke of legalism again. But at the same time, he wants them to understand that they were called to freedom, but not to license. They were called to freedom. That is, they're, they're not bound by all these rules and regulations. Don't eat this, do, eat this, don't go here, go there, don't travel so far on the Sabbath, whatever. They were freed from all of those regulations that that religion tends to bind us with, that moralism tends to bind us with, but they were not set free for the, for the purpose of living a licentious lifestyle. Just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, or, or, or we're going to do this sin, we're going to involve ourselves in more sin so that grace may abound all the, all the more. Paul is saying here there is an understanding of a balance here that comes from knowing Christ. And quite honestly, if you were to make the statement, well, I'm saved and I'm just going to live like I want to live because the grace of God just keeps filling me and the grace of God just keeps forgiving me and I'm just going to sin a lot so he'll give me a lot of grace, Paul would say, then you do not understand what I'm talking about. You've totally misunderstood the whole concept of the gospel. You've made it self-centered. You've made it about you. You've made it about your own life and what you want to do with it not about what God has said and what God would have you do so he says don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh later on he's going to uh, not tonight but next week we're going to look at verses following in chapter 5 and we're going to see the apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit and he talks about the deeds of the flesh he's going to talk about the difference in those two and if you walk in the flesh you carry out the deeds of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's not that you say, okay, I am in the Spirit now, I'm in Christ, I've been saved, so I'm going to work hard, I'm going to try to be loving, I'm going to try to have peace, I'm going to try to have joy. No. He says that is a natural outworking of, of who you are if you're in Christ, if you're in the Spirit. At the same point, you, you don't have to say, okay, I'm I'm walking the flesh, so I'm going to try to be immoral, I'm going to be impure, I'm going to be sensual, and I'm going to follow idolatry. Those are not things you have to try to do. If you are in the flesh, those are things that come natural to you. They're a natural part of your life. So Paul is making a, a, a quick change here from trying to convince them not to go back into their old way of life in Judaism, not to go back to the law, 
Not to go back to legalism. But also not to fall into this false dichotomy of, well, now that I'm in Christ, I can just live like the world, live like the devil, and be any way I want to be. There is a distinctiveness that comes from being a believer. There's a distinctive lifestyle that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. It changes everything. We talked about it this morning. I was, I was glad that many of you appreciated the analogy that I used. I wasn't sure how it would hit. But I had a bunch of people say, that boardroom analogy really made sense. Because I've struggled with that in my own life at times, you know, where I'm just, everybody, every part of my life is casting a vote, and I'm trying to get Jesus to give a vote, but that's all I want. But that's not the Christian life. That is a religious life. That is a, that is a legalistic life. But it's not the Christian life. The Christian life is submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, years ago there was a real controversy. I guess it still rages somewhat. But, but John MacArthur was caught in the middle of it and some others uh, uh, about whether, there's, whether you have to come to Christ as Lord in order to be saved. Does he have to be Lord in order for you to be saved? Or can he just be Savior, and you can go on in carnality and, and living life like you want to, but he's your Savior? That's the boardroom approach. You know, there is no salvation apart from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean you'll always live perfectly? We know better than that. We know that there is no perfection this side of heaven, although some might teach that, some might believe that. But Paul makes it clear, John makes it clear, Peter makes it clear, and Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we are going to struggle with sin and sinfulness as long as we live on the face of the earth. Now, sanctification, the process by which we are moving toward Christ's likeness, ought to cause us to have less a struggle with sin tomorrow than we had today, or next week than we had last week. There ought to be a progressive growth of sanctification when the Spirit of God is at work. But we will not be perfect. We will not be sinless until we stand face to face before Him in heaven and we receive our glorified selves. We are glorified in His presence. And that's an important thing to remember. Uh, because if you think you've got to live sinlessly on this earth in order to be saved, you're going to live one more major frustrated life. Let me tell you. Because you're going to be saved today and lost tomorrow and uh, saved again the next day and lost for two or three days and then back saved for a few days. That just doesn't work. It doesn't work practically. It doesn't work biblically. It doesn't work experientially. The truth of the matter is, we are, if we are in Christ, we are saved even in spite of the fact that we will still struggle with sin. We'll still struggle with indwelling sin until the day we die. That's what Paul is wanting us to see. But if we are in Christ, we will not try to find new ways. We will not glory in our sinfulness. We will not say, oh, well, I just want to sin so God can forgive me some more. That's not the concept of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, if that is your concept, if that's how you feel, if, if you know somebody feels that way, then I dare say I would doubt their salvation. I would doubt whether they really know the Lord. Because they are more caught up in the flesh than they are in the spiritual things of life. They're more caught up in, in fulfilling the desires of their flesh and the desires of their own personal pleasure than they are in fulfilling the, the obedience to the Spirit as He works in our life in changing us into Christ. I've, I've made this statement before. I don't know if I've ever made it here or not. But I, I remember getting in a whole lot of trouble 
a few years back in a church in Florida where I pastored uh, by making this statement when I said, you know, I, I really... I really believe a person is more apt to be truly, genuinely saved if they come and they, they come to see, say you got two people coming to me, and one comes to me and says, hey, I'm having no problems, I'm having no struggles, there's no struggle with sin, there's no struggle with disobedience. Man, I am just cruising in this Christian life. I wonder if they really know the Lord. As opposed to one who comes and says, you know, Pastor, I just, I don't know if I can really, I don't know if I'm really saved or not. I, I have this sin that keeps attacking me, that keeps tempting me, that I keep struggling with, and it seems like I cannot make a break from it, and it bothers me, it troubles me. That person, I think, really probably knows the Lord. Why? Because when we, have the, when, when we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. And when the Holy Spirit lives within us and there is a sin that crops up in our life, creeps up in our life, the Holy Spirit begins to hit at that sin. He begins to bring conviction of that sin. He begins to show that that is sinful. That is wrong. You need to repent of that. You need to turn away from that. But in the person who's really not in Christ, they can have all sorts of sins in their life and they just feel happy as they can be because there's no Holy Spirit there saying, no, that is wrong, that is sinful, you're disobedient. You need to repent of that and turn from it. Do you understand what I'm saying there? That's an important concept to understand. Those who are in Christ will struggle. I, I love Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 7. Here's the great apostle. And Paul says, you know, man, I struggle every day. I find myself doing the things I know I ought not do, and I find myself not doing the things that I really ought to do, and I, I wrestle with that, I fight with that, I struggle with that, and finally comes to the end of it, he says, who will deliver me from this body of sin? And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ will. Now, there's a lot of discussion about was that pre-conversion Paul, or was that post-conversion Paul, or, or who exactly is it? I believe it was, it was Christian Paul. It was the post-conversion Paul. Because a pre-converted person has no struggle with sin. They just do it and love it. It's the old pig and sheep analogy and falling in the mud hole. You know, the pig loves it, wallers, enjoys every minute of it. The sheep gets up and tries to get clean as quick as they can. It's just not their natural habitat. For the unbeliever, sin is a natural habitat. And so they walk in it, they revel in it, they enjoy it. Now, they may be religious, and they would say, well, I'm not struggling with sin. Man, if you're not struggling with sin, you ought to do some real self-examination before God. And I, I'm, I'm serious about that. Because Paul says we are called to freedom, but don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And then he, then he gives an interesting tie-in here. He says, but through love, serve one another. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Well, in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The one word there, obviously, is love. The statement is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment. First greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul here is saying, I want you to understand that there is a, there is a, there's a correlation to walking in the Spirit and loving one another. There's a correlation to loving God and loving one another. The way we see that worked out, our love for God, we see it worked out by loving one another. I like the way John put it. Turn with me over to 1 John for just a second. 
1 John chapter 3. If you look down there about, I don't know, verse 13. John writes, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. For we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's how we know that we have moved from death to life. That's how we know we've moved from the flesh to the spirit. That's how we know that we have moved from lostness into relationship with Christ, into savedness. We, we know that we passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know, by, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed and in truth we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him and whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before God and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight now when John is talking here you know if you just give a cursory reading of that you can say well John's getting kind of legalistic here if you really do want to be right if you want to have your heart not condemn you then you'll love other people if you see your brother in need and you close your heart to them then you sin if you see your brother in need and you help meet that need you have the means and you help meet that need then your heart won't condemn you you'll stand and if our heart doesn't condemn us we have confidence before God and and Easily that could become a subjective type of Christianity that could cause uh, real problems down the road if we just depend on our heart. But what, what John is saying here is, is that this is how we know that we love God because God has placed within us a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. God has placed within his children a, a genuine love for the body of Christ. A, a love that goes beyond words, a love that goes beyond deeds, uh, excuse me, beyond tongue to deeds and to action in truth. So if you see your brother in need and you have the means to help meet that need uh, and you don't, then you've disobeyed God. You've not shown love. Now, again, I, I want you to understand, I think John is talking about within the body here. I don't, I don't think he's talking about that every, every time you see somebody on the street, you've got to stop and give $100 or, or whatever. I think uh, that can be very... Uh, uh, foolish in some cases but it means within the family within our body that we are commanded to love that we are we come together and if we see needs and we have the means to help then we help with those needs you know that's one of the things I love about grace I really do when a need arises it immediately uh, I mean I can't get out of this building before people are saying how can we help meet that need how can we minister to that person? They have this need. How can we help with it? It's an amazing thing to see how God just uses this body to care for one another in ways that you never see. We don't put it in the grace notes. We don't run a thing in the bulletin about it and say, oh, so-and-so did so-and-so for so-and-so. That's not the issue. But it's a, it's a quiet love and 
meeting of needs that demonstrates that the love of God abides in us. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. You, love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and there I, I really think the context is within the body as John's is in talking about that. There's a love for neighbor that goes beyond the church, no doubt. And that love is demonstrated by, as we talked about this morning, sharing the gospel. Expressing that love through telling them the truth about Jesus Christ and praying and desiring and, and hoping that they become a part of the family become a part of the body of Christ. We share that. That's a way of love. We love people when we share the gospel with them. We, we show them no greater love. There's no way to show them any greater love than when we share the gospel with them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, he says, But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another, that you are not destroyed by one another. Again, that's one of the major uh, problems of the flesh. The flesh so wants its own way. The flesh so wants what is pleasing to it, pleasurable to it. We'll see that in the next part of this chapter next week, that it just demands it. I, mean, I don't know, when you hear that verse read, I don't know if you get any kind of picture in your mind. But I've got this, I remember when I was growing up in it, on one side of my house, there lived a bulldog. I had a bulldog too, but I kept him in control. Uh, anyway, there was a bulldog on one side, and there was a collie on the other side. And I don't know what those two dogs did to each other, but at one time in their life, one of them did something really bad to the other one because they hated each other. And when they would see each other, even across our yard, they would start snarling and showing their teeth and growling, you know, and they would... And if they ever got in the same proximity, friend, they went for the jugular. They started biting and wrestling and fighting. and oh, It was mayhem until one got hurt bad enough. It ran off and until the next time they saw each other. And when I see this, I just see two dogs that just kind of uh, just don't care for each other at all. And they start baring their teeth and growling and, and snarling at one another. And sometimes we act that way. I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but I think we could probably think of some examples to illustrate how people can act that way. And Paul is simply saying, listen, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, you will defer to one another. You won't bite and devour. You won't attack. You won't demand your own way. If you're, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're, if you're truly looking out for freedom in Christ and not licentiousness, if you're truly seeking to serve one another, if you're truly seeking to live out the fulfillment of the law to love your neighbor as yourself, then you defer. You, you defer to one another. You accept one another. You don't say, hey, it's my way or the highway. You don't say, hey... You'll either look at it my way or we won't do it at all. You know, I, I'm a firm believer that I'm, I'm a firm believer that when a, when we do vote on things, that it ought to be a hundred percent vote. It ought to be unanimous. I realize we're Baptists and that's hard to do, but you know, I just really believe that if we're all walking and, and I'm not saying that I'm not sometimes the one that's out of walk with the Spirit and voting the wrong way. Don't get me wrong here. It's not, I'm not always right. 
But there ought to be such a coming together to seek the will of God, to seek the, seek the unity of the Spirit with one another. That when we come to make a decision, we, we just make that decision unanimously. We make it together. Uh, I, I talked to a, well, I won't go there. That's another, another pastor friend who they've just gone through that with some, some things. And, but there ought, to be that, there ought to be that coming together to say, you know, it's not really what I want. It's not what the pastor wants. It's not what the staff wants. It's not what the deacons want. It's not what you want or I want. It's what the Spirit of God wants. And what He wants for grace more than anything else is love to one another, meeting one another's needs, and unity. Because by this all men will know that you're my disciples you have love one for another. And by this the world will know that I am from you, Father, that you did send me into the world when they are one, even as you and I are one. That's what Jesus said, John 17, in his high priestly prayer. Now, I, we had lunch today with some members, and we were talking, and the question was asked, and I think it's a legitimate question. Do you think we'll be able to maintain this unity and spirit when we move to Oak Leaf Lane? You know, right now, we're, we're not in the most beautiful place we're just in a, 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 a an adequate place and we have to run up and down bogle street to sunday school and we have to drop our kids here or down the holtz claw building and go to our sunday school class and retrieve them and get everybody together you know how do you how do you we all get under one building you think it'll change i said well you know it certainly could if we lose our focus it's not about a building it's not about a place it's about the Spirit leading us. I remember when we, in, in Florida, when we went from having three morning worship services in a sanctuary that uh, was about this size, maybe didn't even see quite this many, three morning worship services packed in. We had people on the front row besides just one person. I mean, it was full everywhere. It was on this side and there, everywhere. I mean, it was full. And you had to squeeze in every service, especially the, the 915 and the 1045 services. And everybody, we got to squeeze in to make room for more people. And everybody would squeeze in. And, and, and I thought, man, we're, we're building a sanctuary across the street. Let's see, 1,375. And it's going to be so great. We're all going to be together. At least at the beginning, you don't have to squeeze in. You can just kind of have a little space between you, you know. And, and we can just sing together and praise the Lord together and and it's just going to be the greatest thing in the world. And, 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 and we've not had any real complaints about the squeezing and the size and having to have two Sunday schools and three worship services. And nobody complained about that but me. And uh, we had all this stuff going, you know. We got across the street and we hadn't been, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a great facility. And we hadn't been there two months until I started hearing, I don't like it. The floors slope too steep. The the pews don't my feet don't fit just right on the floor with the pew and, and and you know it's it's too hot or it's too cold or it's too hot and cold. You know, in in some cases with Ricky he gets the same thing two different things with the same person I think. But you know, it, I mean complaints about everything. And then I started hearing I just wish we were back over there. What? <laughs> well, when we were over there. You know, we we worshipped with the same. 300 people and 
and we knew they were there, and we'd look across, we could see them. Well, I can't even hardly recognize people all the way across this one. We were there together, and, and I knew I'd see so-and-so because they sat in their seat, and I sat in my seat, and we were close enough to, you know, say hi to each other. And, and I said, but here we're, we're a, there's a thousand of us now together worshiping and lifting our voices to God and, and, and together at one time. Yeah, I know, I don't like it. I want to go, I, I wish we were back over there. I'm going, you know, it's not about a building. It's about a focus. And, and I think if we're not careful, what Paul is talking about here, we will get out of focus. And we will miss it. I don't want us to miss it. I don't want to lose one thing. We, we come here because of a purpose. We come here because of the word. We come here because of worship. I mean, let's face it, that's the two things that drive us. We don't put on a big show. We don't, we don't do a lot of programmatic things. And some people come and they say, well, where are all your programs? And we say, well, our programs are come worshiping and the Word. Oh, well, we want something bigger, better. Well, that, then there's plenty of places to go for that. We've got to keep our focus. And the main focus has got to be that we love one another. We don't walk according to the flesh, but we walk in accordance with the Spirit. We'll talk more about that next week. Well, you're called to freedom, but don't turn your freedom into an occasion for the flesh. Don't devour one another. Don't bite one another. Love one another by the power of God, the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this evening. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you for being able to worship together. Now, Lord, use this passage, this very brief passage, to bring us into greater conformity to you even as we walk on this earth. Father, we pray for this week. Give us the opportunity to share your truth, your gospel, people that we love, that people that we care about, but who don't know you. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.